And uh, one more announcement. I, I'm reminded because Ray's in his uniform, and it's always a blessing to, to see Ray in his uniform. And, and uh, um, in fact, second service, we're going to pray for my son Matthew because he's leaving for the service tomorrow morning. And so uh, we're going to pray for him. But anyway, um, you can be praying for him, exactly. Um, but uh, Steve Schetzel, you all know Steve, uh, been a part of the church since before I got here. He was looking forward to this day because he wanted to, to wear his uniform this day. But he took a fall a couple days ago, and now he's in the hospital. And he's got broken this and broken that. And, I mean, he's, he's really broken up this time. And, and so uh, just be praying for him and, and uh, praying for a quick healing for him as well. And because and, uh, I know he was, he was looking forward to wearing his uniform. So I think I can get into my uniform. And I said, all right, Steve, you know, even if we're just going to lay it in front of him, he was going <laughs> to wear it. But uh, just be praying for Steve. Uh, well, we're back in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 9. We're going to be looking at verses 9 through 17. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand and we'll get one right to your seat so you can follow along with us. Matthew, chapter 9. Verses 9 through 17 this morning. We read starting in verse 9. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, follow me. So he arose and followed him. Now it happened as Jesus sat at the table in the house that behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard that, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I did, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Then the, then the disciples of John came to him, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus said to them, Can the friends of the bridegroom mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then, then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. For the patch pulls away from the garment and tear, the tear is made worse. Nor do they put a new wine into old wineskins or else the wineskins break. The wine is spilled and the wineskins are ruined. But they put the new wine into the new wineskins and both are preserved. The title of my message this morning is Jesus is dot, dot, dot. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together, Lord, to have your word before us that we can open up and dig into and know, Lord God, that your Holy Spirit will teach us and instruct us in all things. We thank you for this section of Scripture, God, and we pray that we would gain not only information but application in our lives that would draw us closer to our relationship with you. Lord, help us to open up our hearts and our lives to you this morning and examine our lives, Lord, and as we hear from your Spirit, make those changes as you lead us and direct us. Encourage us where we need encouragement. Exhort us where we need exhortation. We thank you, Lord, for this time together. Lord, we also pray if there's anyone that has joined us uh, this service or will join us next service that does not have a personal relationship with your son, Jesus Christ. They're, they're not born again. Lord, would you especially touch their heart today that they would see their need for you, see their need to come to you, 
and to know you as their Lord and as their Savior. So we ask your blessing upon our time together. We commit it to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now the military, they have their mottos. You know, the Marines, Semper Fi, you know, always faithful. U.S. Army says, this will defend. U.S. Air Force says, aim high, fly, fight, win. U.S. Navy, not south, but country. U.S. National Guard, always ready, always there. U.S. Coast Guard, always prepared. And I think those, those models, those, those slogans are great, and every one of them describes the readiness and the, the willingness of our brave men and women to protect and defend our nation as we honor them today. But I found a few other slogans that people have made. Not actual slogans, but, but, but ones that actually better describe the product. For example, Hot Pockets. You've heard of Hot Pockets, right? Every bite is a different temperature. Night quill. Slip into a nice coma for a few hours. Motel 6. We'll leave the light on for you because you're probably in a sketchy neighborhood. <laughs> Kellogg's Rice Krispies. You have one minute to enjoy this cereal. Go. Young kids get all soggy and it's, it's terrible. Cinnabon. When it's time to eat your feelings again. <laughs> I like this last one. Urban Outfitters. Paying good money to look homeless. Mottos are good when they, when they accurately describe a product or, or a group. When it comes to Jesus, I mean, the mottos would be endless. But in this section of Scripture, in these nine verses, there's three. And these are our three points this morning. We'll see that Jesus is, dot, 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 the friend of sinners. Jesus is the great physician. Jesus is the bridegroom. You see, this chapter began with a miracle. The man that was a, a paralytic healed as he was brought through the roof of, of uh, you know, uh, the house. And, and, and really, uh, verses 1 through 8, we saw this great miracle. Jesus is in Capernaum. He's in his, his place, you know, his home base of ministry. And now Matthew, the writer of this gospel, has, has, has caught us up to, to this point to where Jesus actually calls him to be a follower. And here's Matthew's own testimony. In point number one, we'll see that Jesus is a friend of sinners. Look at verse 9. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office, and he said to him, follow me. So he arose and followed him. Let me ask you a question. Can you think of a person right now that you know, someone that you work with, someone near you or, or a member of your family that you can never imagine becoming a Christian? Never imagine them converting to Christianity. I mean, you can't imagine them coming into church with the Bible in their hand, singing a worship song and, and following the Lord. Or maybe think of somebody out in the public eye, you know, that, that, that you could never imagine being a Christian. Maybe, you know, Bill Mayer, you know, that guy, I mean, he's anything but, or Howard Stern, or, or maybe Kim Jong-un, you know. Well, before this morning is a story of a man that no one expected would become a Christian. I think he expected it the least. See, his name is Matthew. Now, in another gospel, he's called Levi. It could be that he changed his name when he chose to follow Jesus Christ. The name Matthew means gift of God. So he kind of leaves that name behind Levi, and he's giving us his own testimony here. And it, and it says here in verse 9 that he was sitting at the tax office. And this is where he would, you know, collect taxes for the Roman government. Matthew was a tax collector. Now, back then, tax collectors were absolutely despised. Not that they're loved today anymore, but 
I mean, you wouldn't put a bumper sticker on your car, I love my IRS agent, you know, unless maybe you're married to them, you know, I don't know. But Because in those days, tax collectors, they were crooks. They were thieves. The furthest thing from a Christian that you could imagine, they, they had sold out to the Roman government. They would bid on certain districts, you know, to, the, to collect the taxes in. I mean, if you could, you know, bid and you get one, you know, a wealthy district, man, then you can make some money. And they would set up their shop and they would collect taxes. Now, see, they'd have to give a, a portion of that money, obviously, the, the set amount to Rome. But anything above what they collected, they could keep for themselves. And so they would fleece the people and they would set the taxes really high and, and, and give what they needed to Roman government and then keep the rest. These guys, they lived in the lap of luxury. I, I mean, they had all the money, all the material things that someone could want. And because of that, common people hated them. I mean, if a tax collector was walking down the street, people would call them names. They would sometimes spit at them. They would throw you know, rotten fruit at them. To make matters worse, if one of these tax collectors happened to be a Jew, as Matthew was, he was thought of as the ultimate turncoat, a collaborator with the occupying force of Rome. I mean, the Jewish people then really hated them. No one wanted to associate with a tax collector. So who does Jesus pick to be one of his disciples? A despised, hated, turncoat tax collector thief sold out to Rome. Why? Because Jesus is a friend to sinners. More so because it's all about God's grace. See, the Bible makes it very, very clear that we have been called by God's grace. Now, why God calls us, we'll never know. There are those who think, well, God called me because, you know, I, I'm rich or because I'm good looking or, you know, um, I'm smart enough and, you know, people like me. No, God has called you despite of who you are. God calls us because of who he is and not because of who we are. He's a gracious God. He's a merciful God and he's called you because of his grace, unearned, undeserved, unmerited favor. God hasn't called you because you deserve to be called. I think of the calling that God has on, on my life and saving me and even God calling me into the ministry. Let me tell you, it's not who I am. The only explanation I can give for my calling is 1 Corinthians chapter 1. God has called the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. It's interesting to me, though, that Matthew says in verse 9 that Jesus saw a man named Matthew. Mark's gospel is a little different. Mark says he saw a tax collector. There's a big difference. In man's eyes, you know, we see the sinner. We see the, the tax collector. And we make so many judgments about the outward appearance. And we evaluate people about what they say and, and what they look like and what they wear. Jesus, here, Jesus didn't see the tax collector. He saw a man. A man created in the image of God. A living soul with hurts and problems and sins and fear. A man that Jesus came to die for. And no doubt Matthew was used to the criticism, the harassment from, from, from the people because of, of who he was. So can you imagine the shock on, on his face when Jesus turns to him, looks at him, he's thinking, oh no, here it comes, you know. And suddenly he treats him with this love and kindness and respect and says, hey, come and follow me. He's probably looking behind him and going, you talking to me? Are you talking to me? But Jesus looks directly at him and says, come and follow me. Let me ask you this morning, is there a Matthew in your life? That is, someone who the world despises, that the Christians want nothing to do with, someone who everyone treats badly because, because they're bad. 
What would happen if someone like you came up to them or, and, and talked to them and showed them the love of Christ? If you went out of your way to talk with them and, and share with them, maybe they would look at you and say, are you talking to me? Uh, really? Maybe they'd be shocked, but shocked enough to take notice and listen to what you have to say. See, I think this is a great illustration for all of us as we see Jesus extend his love and his grace and forgiveness even to the outcasts of society. Listen, there's no one that has gone too far in their sin, in their lives, that Jesus won't forgive and call to follow him. And we see here in verse 9 that Matthew arose and followed him. Now, Scripture indicates that Matthew immediately followed Jesus. Now, for him to leave his tax booth, man, he left quite a bit. Luke's version tells us that, uh, the same story says, he left all and arose and followed him. Matthew doesn't tell us, you know, he left things. Luke does. Matthew's modest. Matthew doesn't want to brag. But the fact of the matter is, he left a lot to follow Jesus Christ. I mean, he knew as his position as an agent of Rome, he knew once he forsook his post, he could never return to it again. He knew the cost and he willingly paid it. In fact, of all the disciples of Jesus, Matthew made the greatest sacrifice as far as material possessions go. Left his career, left his livelihood, left everything he had in a moment's notice to follow Christ. I like, like what the late Jim Elliott once said. He said, he is no fool to give up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Think of Matthew. I think Matthew would agree with the statement of the Apostle Paul when he said in Philippians 3, 7, but whatever things were gained to me, those things I've counted as a loss for the sake of Christ. I mean, it really reminds us when a person comes to Christ, they cannot leave that old life fast enough. The old habits, the old standards and practices no longer appeal to them. They gladly leave that stuff behind if they have a true relationship with the Lord. Yeah, sure, Matthew lost a few things, but he gained some things that were far better. He lost a career, but he gained a destiny. He lost his material possession, but he gained his spiritual fortune. He lost his temporal security, but he gained eternal life. He lost his emptiness and loneliness and found fulfillment and companionship. He gave up all the world has to offer, but he found Jesus. You know, the only thing that Matthew carried from his old life to his new life was, his, was following Jesus was his pen. I mean, you know, he'd be seated there at the gate at the table of customs, he'd, you know, his ledger and writing down figures and taking his toll, and now, now he's writing for Jesus. And we have the gospel. We, we have it here. I mean, think about what would happen if, if Matthew never followed Jesus. Perhaps we wouldn't have this gospel. We wouldn't have his testimony. We wouldn't have his story. But how wonderful it is that God comes to us in his grace. And he calls us. And he even uses, you know, our, our talents, our gifts and abilities to, to, to have to further his kingdom and to bring his glory. So in response to Jesus calling Matthew, the very first thing that Matthew does, verse 10, is to throw a party. Invite all of his tax collecting friends over. Look at verse 10. Now it happened as Jesus sat at the table in the house, that behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. Again, the other Gospels makes it clear that this, this, this party was taking place at Matthew's house. And if anyone can throw a party, listen, it would be a tax collector. I mean, they got, they got the funds, you know, they got the bucks. They have the nice houses, they have the money. So Matthew throws his party, invites all of his buddies, old, old sin buddies over. Now, why did Matthew throw a party for Jesus? Well, obviously, number one, to celebrate his new life in Christ. 
He was excited that Jesus had called him. He found Christ. He's going to follow him. And then whenever you come to Jesus Christ, it's time to celebrate. It's time to rejoice. The Bible says the angels rejoice in heaven over one sinner that repents. Secondly, Matthew had a party to honor Jesus who had called him. And thirdly, I think Matthew did this to introduce his friends to Jesus. You know, the best time to, to win your friends to Jesus is when you first come to follow Jesus yourself because you still have contact with your old friends. They don't know any better. You know, they don't know that you've changed. And say, hey man, come on to church. I want you to show something. Share with you something. But after, after you've been a Christian for a while, you kind of lose contact with the old crowd. I think for the most part, the ones that are bringing unsaved people to church usually are the new believers, the new Christians. I think that that's sadly something that often seems to fade with age. As you get older in the faith and deeper in your knowledge of the of Scripture, often we forget about the joy of seeing people come to faith in Jesus Christ, sharing the gospel. I mean, when was the last time you shared the gospel with someone? Can you remember the last time you invited someone to church with you? I tell you, it is so exciting to see someone come to faith in Christ, to, to pass from death to life. It's like a, a shot of adrenaline. I mean, you, you see someone may, maybe raise their hand in church, and I want to give my life to Christ. I'm like, yes! Who else can we invite to church? Who else can we share the gospel with? And, and it pumps you up. But if we don't have that going on, it's like, oh, same thing, day in, day out, every Sunday. Man, there's an excitement when you see believers or non-believers come to Christ. I think as believers, we really... We'll follow Lord, we ought to be thinking about these things. There's a great old story when Oliver Cromwell ruled England during the time of crisis when they were running low on coins. And so they were looking for silver and gold to, to mint coins with. Well, his army came to him one day and said, there's no more gold and silver to be found in all the land except, they said, the metal statues in the cathedrals in England. And Cromwell smiled and said, melt down those saints and put them back in the circulation. May God put us back in the circulation. So here, here Matthew throws a big party to introduce his friends to Jesus. Jesus is sitting there among all of Matthew's friends. And, and this brings us to point number two. Jesus is the great physician. Look at verse 11. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? So here you have Jesus sitting back having a good time and the Pharisees walk up in their robes and all and, and this holier than now look on their faces and they come to Jesus' disciples and say, hey, hey, this isn't right. Do you guys know what's going on? Your teacher, he's hanging out with tax collectors and sinners. Ooh, you know. It just as we know better than you kind of attitude seeking to rebuke Jesus. I like what Mark Twain once said. Having spent considerable time with good people, I can understand why Jesus liked to be with tax collectors and sinners. I, I love Jesus' response in verse 12. When Jesus heard that, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. In other words, Mr. Pharisee, Mr. Religious Dude, you want to know why I'm eating with tax collectors and sinners? Because they're tax collectors and sinners. And tax collectors and sinners are, are sick people and spiritually, and because they're sick, who else would a doctor be with? I'm the doctor that actually makes house calls. I mean, if you think about it, becoming a Christian is very similar to getting fixed of a disease, getting cured of a disease. You can't get cured of a disease unless you, you first admit, I have a disease, I'm sick. Now, some people, you know, that I've met, they don't like to admit when they get sick. How you doing? Great. Well, you don't sound great. <laughs> no, I'm fine. We have a, a name for people like that. We call them dead, eventually. 
<laughs> Why? Because they never admit they're sick. They never admit they have a problem. They never go to seek help for their problem. They don't go to a doctor. You know, as guys especially, you know, we'll tell our wives we're sick. Why? Because we want the sympathy. We want the chicken noodle soup. We want to be babied. But if the wife says, no, you need to go to the doctor. Nope, I'm fine. I'm good. I'm fine. We act as though we're so strong and, and healthy. We don't need anything. But in reality, we're, we're big wimps because we're afraid if we go to the doctor, we might actually have to have a shot or they might take blood or something like that. That's a real problem. I heard a story about a doctor who gave his patient six months to live. And six months when he couldn't pay his bill, the doctor gave him another six months to live. <laughs> you see, to Jesus, Matthew and his friends were not rejects. Rather, they were patients who needed a physician. And Jesus' first answer to them is logical in verse 12. Those who are well have no need of a physician. I mean, doesn't that make sense? I mean, if everything is fine, you're not sick, you're healthy, you're fine, then why go see a doctor? But what Jesus also says, well, these people are sick and they need help, and I am the great physician. I mean, think about this. Where do physicians spend most of their time? Around sick people. I mean, if you're a doctor, where do you hang out all day? Sick people, they come to you all day long, they breathe on you, they cough on you, and you're around the sick and the suffering all the time. And so Jesus was supposed to be around these people because they were sick. They needed a physician. Now those who are well, that it says here, really Jesus is making a reference to the Pharisees, but this was a self-righteous wellness. In reality, they were sinners too. They needed Jesus Christ, but they just didn't see their need. You know, when, when you think in terms of the Pharisees, when they say, why is your master eating with sinners? Who else is he going to eat with? <laughs> We've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. Now, I believe it's 100% true. We are all sinners saved by God's grace. And I know the Bible talks about the saints who are in Christ Jesus and so forth. But, but we're still all, we're basically sinners. Yeah, we've got a new nature. We're children of God. But the problem is we still have that old sin nature in us. And, and you know, when you got married, you married a sinner. You may go, amen, brother. Well, listen, whoever married you married a sinner as well. Two sinners living together all under one roof. And whenever you get together as a family for family dinner and you're all sitting around the dining room table, guess what? You're still a bunch of sinners. And you need the Lord's help. We need the great physician. You need him in your home. You need him in your marriage. You need him in raising your kids. You need him every moment of your life. And you need to stay in that awareness that, Lord, I need you. I'm sick. Lord, I need the physician. I really need you. Because sin is likened in the Bible as sickness. It's a terminal disease that brings death. And yet Jesus comes in and makes a perfect diagnosis of man's problem, which is sin. And he provides a final and complete cure. His sacrifice upon the cross. Not only that, to show what a wonderful physician he really is, he pays the bill. I mean, it's a gift of salvation is free. I mean, isn't that cool? How would you like to find a doctor that does that? You come to him when you need him. He properly diagnoses the problem, gives you the cure, and then pays the bill. I say that's a pretty good physician. <laughs> Jesus is the great physician. Now, in Jesus liking himself to a physician, he was also liking these Pharisees to a bunch of quacks. I mean, he's, he's indicting them for malpractice. He's saying, you're good at diagnosing but you're rotten at, at a cure. You point out how bad people are, but you don't know how to do anything about it. I mean, how would you like to go to a doctor like that? 
Yeah, it looks as though you have some sort of infection, some sort of disease. It looks terminal. I see the boils all over your body. You're itching everywhere, throwing up. Boy, you look miserable. Yeah, you are sick. That'll be $3,000. Yeah, I mean, you go, man, you're, you're a quack. You'd say, I need someone else. Jesus is saying you guys are quacks. You're good at telling everybody what's wrong with them, and you haven't got a clue for the cure. Nor do you realize that you yourself are just as sick. I mean, look, look what he says. Look at verse 13. He says, But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Notice he doesn't say, listen, go away and leave me alone. He doesn't say that. What, what does he say? He says, go and learn. I mean, he's a great physician. He's even given them the cure, what they need to do. Go and learn. He's quoting here from the Old Testament book of Hosea, chapter 6, verse 6. I, I will have mercy and not sacrifice. You know, the, 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 the Pharisees, man, they, they're all into the sacrifice, but they weren't showing mercy. And, that, you know, that's what legalists do. You know, I fast twice a week. I, I, I give my tithes, all that I possess. I go to church every Sunday. I do this, I do that, because that's what I do. But they're doing all these religious works. They're not showing mercy on someone who desperately needs mercy. The Pharisees observed the letter of the law but had no compassion on those who needed spiritual help. They only associated with the self-righteous people like themselves. They were quick to diagnose the needs of others but were blind to their own needs. I think we need to be aware of this as a church that we don't find ourselves looking down and despising others and thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought to. We're all in need of God's grace daily. We should all realize we're sinners saved by grace and the only hope we have is to throw ourselves down before the Lord and depend upon his mercy and grace. But again, these, these Pharisees, they're legalists just saying, you guys, Jesus says, look, you guys are doing all the religious sacrificial things, but you're not showing mercy. God wants mercy. I, I love Micah 6, verse 8. He has shown you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. I think this is pretty well illustrated in the story of the prodigal son between the prodigal son and the elder brother. A lot of people focus the prodigal son story on, on, on the son, the younger brother who wasted his, his inheritance and righteous living. But just as much of a problem was the older brother, man who, who showed up when the party was going on, similar to this party going on at Matthew's house. The older brother stood outside the house, probably folded his arms with his frown on his face, and the servant walks by and says, hey, what's, what's going on in there? And the servant says, well, haven't you heard? Your, your younger brother, your little brother's come home and dad's killed the, the fattest cow and now they're having a party. What did the older brother do? No way. My dad's never given me a party. I've worked and I've sweated and I've labored and I've served and I've done everything he wanted me to do. He's never given me a party. A little punk brother comes home and, and the first thing he does is he kills a fatted calf and throws a party. I'm not going in. No way. Okay, it doesn't say punk. Okay, that's not in the scripture. Don't, don't look for that, but... No, the only one that wasn't celebrating was the older brother. Everyone was having a great time. No way was he about to show his little brother mercy. And that's what legalistic, judgmental religion does to you. Others are, are having a party. and You're like, wipe that smile off your face. We're at church. Christians can't smile. Why don't you be spiritual and bummed out like me? I mean, the, the whole story of the prodigal son is about God the Father showing mercy to those who don't deserve it. And that's what Jesus is illustrating to, the, to these Pharisees. Why? Well, because no matter how far you've gone, how long you've been away from the Lord, He's always there waiting for you to come back to Him to restore that relationship with Him. Why? Because He's a friend of sinners and He's a great physician. 
You know, with Jesus as a great physician, there are three types of patients that the Lord can't help. Number one, those who do not know about him. Number two, those who know about him but refuse his help. And number three, those who will not admit that they need him. Our responsibility is to tell people about him. What they do with that information is really up to them. So, number one, Jesus is a friend of sinners. Number two, he's a great physician. Or third and final point, Jesus is the bridegroom. Look at verses 14 and 15. Then the disciples of John came to him saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the friend of the bridegroom mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. So the first question in verse 11 had to do with the kind of company that Jesus was keeping. Oh, you're worth the sinners and the, you know, and the tax collectors. The second question here raises the issue of why Jesus was having a, such a good time with them. This is great. I think it's funny. The Pharisees come up with their big robes on and all their stuff in this and say, why are you eating with these tax collectors and, and sinners? And the second group comes along and they're John the Baptist's disciples. They want to know why he's having such a good time with them. I'll tell you this. I bet Jesus had a great time with his disciples. I mean, 12 men all hanging out together with all the different personalities. I mean, I bet they had a lot of fun. But John the Baptist's disciples, they come on the scene and they want to know why he's having such a good time with them. In fact, they say, why do we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? No doubt that the Pharisees have found John's disciples and they've, they've kind of been communicating with each other. You know, Paul says something about that in 1 Corinthians 15.33. Do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. You might say misery likes company. And that's what I believe was happening here. See, if you recall, Jesus said back in chapter 6, verse 16, don't be like the Pharisees who have a sad countenance for they disfigure their faces when they fast. See, they had the idea that the more miserable you looked on the outside, the more spiritual you were. So we get this question here. They come up to Jesus and say, we, the disciples of John, and our pals, the Pharisees, I mean, they're linking themselves together. Okay, we got, we got to talk to you about this. Uh, those guys hanging out with you, Jesus, they're not fasting. They're feasting. They're, they're having fun right now. That, that can't be right. Now, I think that's always the case of the person who's legalistic and lives under all these rules and regulations. They have a real hard time with Christians who have joy. And because of that, they want to criticize and take away that joy and, and they can't handle it. Listen, legalism will always persecute the person who's living in grace and enjoying the free gift of salvation. Jesus and his disciples were feasting and having a good time. You know, it's been said religion brings a funeral, but Jesus brings a feast. Our Christian life should be that of joy. Jesus said, I want you to experience joy, my joy to be complete in you. Even though Jesus was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, Jesus, I believe, experienced great joy. And some people think, well, you know, that's not the way church is supposed to be. You're not supposed to laugh in church. Believe it or not, I have in the past been criticized for using too much humor when I teach. Years ago, many years ago, I was told, I don't like all your dumb jokes. I said, well, you haven't heard them all. I, I mean, there's got to be one. <laughs> I think one of the greatest preachers of all time, Charles Spurgeon, when a lady came up to him after service and criticized him for the humor that he was preaching, uh, he says, or met Madame. If you only knew how much I held back, you would give me credit. You're only getting the tip of the iceberg. I'm doing my very best to hold back. 
Where did we ever get the idea to be spiritual? We can't smile that you've got to be miserable. Thank God in, in many churches today we have been liberated from that concept, though I still think there are some that are around. But see, Jesus brings fullness of joy. Becoming a, a Christian, it, it, you enter into a marriage relationship with the Lord. In fact, Jesus uses that as an answer to why they weren't fasting. Look at verse 15. He says, Can the friends of the bridegroom mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. Listen, salvation involves so much more than just a person knowing about Christ, even having a good feeling towards Christ. Salvation comes when the sinner commits himself or herself to Jesus Christ and says, I do. I want to spend my whole life on earth and on in eternity with you as my Lord and as my Savior. And from that moment on, the believer immediately enters into the joys of the spiritual marriage relationship, bearing Jesus' name, enjoying His wealth, sharing His love and protection, and eventually spending eternity with Him in heaven. That's a marriage relationship. You know, when you get married, it should be a joyous thing. You don't wear black to your wedding. You don't go all gloomy and bummed out. Where are you going? I'm going to my wedding. What a bummer. No. Oh, it's exciting. You smile. You're having a good time. There's music. Sometimes there's dancing. There's celebrating. It's just a wonderful time. That's why Jesus says, hey, I'm the bride, bridegroom and, and these are my bridesmen and these guys are with me right now and it's a time to rejoice. Yes, the time would come when Jesus would be crucified and they would mourn and they would fast. But now is a time of celebration. And Jesus gives a, a final illustration about just what that means. Look at verses 16 and 17, and we'll close with these verses. He says, No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch pulls away from the garment, and the tear is made worse. Nor do they put new wine into old wineskins, or else the wineskins break, and the wine is spilled, and the wineskins are ruined. But they put new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. So what did Jesus mean by that? Well, if you've got a brand new shirt and you, you know, actually not a brand new shirt, an old shirt, and it's got a hole in it, and you take a, 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 a you know, it's already been, been washed and shrunk, you take a brand new piece of material and you patch that hole, then you put it in, in, the, in the wash, what's going to happen? It's going it's to shrink and it's going to tear away from that. It's going to ruin the shirt. So the Pharisees, Jesus is saying, you're this old, legalistic, rigid, hard, steeped in Judaism, and, and Jesus comes not to patch up our old lives, but to give us a new life. And it gives us this image of these wineskins. Now, in those days, they didn't have wine bottles like, like we have. They had goat skins. And, you know, they, they, you know when they get a goat skin, you know, they, they'd cut it and it would, you'd see the outline of the goat. You know, the little legs, stump, and the head, stump, and the tail, stump. And they would, they would, you know, they would get it and pull it up and, and, and they would fill this with wine or water, whatever they wanted. They would put the wine in and the new leather would have that, that elastic, it would be elastic. And, and, uh, and it would stretch so that when the wine would ferment, the gas would press out in the skin, it would stretch it. But then after a period of time, you know, that the skin would become dry and rigid. And if you happen to pour new wine into this old wine skin, well, what's going to happen? You know, it's stiff, it's rigid, it's not going to stretch, and it's just going to pop, it's going to explode. And both the wine and the wine skin would be destroyed. Jesus says new wine must be put into new wine skins. In another gospel, it says, no one after drinking the new desires the old. Listen, Jesus came with a new message. A message of God's love, God's grace, and God's mercy. Can't patch that on to Judaism. I'm always mystified today when believers start to try to go back to Judaism. 
people that aren't even, even Jewish. And, and they, maybe they go to these you know, messianic churches. And at first it's wonderful. You discover some of the, the festivals and activities and scriptures and the reason Sabbath was kept. And it's a wonderful thing. It really is. But then it, suddenly it becomes like this law and you have to do these things and you, you have to honor the Sabbath day and you can't do anything after 6 p.m. on Friday until 6 p.m. on Saturday. And, and in many cases, they try to compel Christians to practice Judaism, to become Judaizers, so to speak. Don't need to do that. If you've never kept the Sabbath as a believer, the Jewish Sabbath, Friday and Saturday, if you've never uh, eat kosher as a Gentile person, that's, that's okay. If you eat a pork sandwich this afternoon, you're not any closer or further away from God. But there are those who say, well, let's go back to the old wine skin and throw the new wine into the skin. And then it came from Judaism because that's where it all functions best. No, Jesus says it doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. I'm not going to pat the new covenant under the old covenant. I'm not going to pour something that is new and fresh into something that's old. You know, it's sad that there's a lot of Christians today that come to Christ and they slip back into the same old legalism. Tell you, one of the first things to, to, to go when you become a legalist is your joy. You lose that joy. You become critical and fault-finding of others because you can't patch God's grace on legalism. But you see, God comes with His new wine of His Holy Spirit and He robes us with His righteousness and He doesn't patch us with the old. He gives us His Holy Spirit and that man that He fills us with joy and, 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 and that's the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace. You can't pour the new wine into the old wineskins. They'll break. Religion is a burden. Jesus brings great blessing. So, as you take these three pictures, Jesus is a friend of sinners, the great physician, he's a bridegroom. Understand, Jesus doesn't just want to patch up the old life. When I gave my life to Christ, he just didn't patch me up. He, he made me completely brand new. The Bible doesn't say old things have been patched up, new things have become like new. <laughs> it doesn't say that. The word says old things have passed away all things have become new. It's a new life in Christ, a new relationship with Jesus Christ. See, we started this study with, with, with Jesus saying to Matthew, follow me. And this morning, Jesus is calling you to follow him into a new relationship, a relationship of love that brings great liberty and joy and love. And like Jesus, let's not become isolated and, 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 and insulated from the world. We need more Matthew parties. You know, where people open their hearts and homes and say, man, I want you to know the one who's changed me. He's a friend of sinners. He's a great physician. He's a bridegroom. And he's coming back for his church, the bride, very, very soon. He is Jesus Christ. We need to get that message out. And let us also remember that we stand daily in need of God's grace. Let's show mercy to one another. You know, and, 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 and love and bring them to Jesus Christ. Finally, if you're here this morning and you've never given your life to Jesus Christ, uh, uh, today is the day to understand that He loves you. He died on the cross for you. And, and you just need to come to Him, repent of your sin, give your life to Him, and He'll give you this new life that He promises you. He'll take away your sin. You can be born again. If you want to, see, if you want to come to know the Lord as soon as we're done, in just a moment, the elders will be up front. We'd love to pray with you and give you a Bible and let you know what it means to follow Jesus Christ. Let's look to the Lord this week, see how we can share His love, His grace, His kindness to those around us, people that we probably wouldn't want to talk to, no one to spend time with, just say, you know, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do a Jesus thing today. I'm going to talk to a Matthew. I'm going to talk to, you don't have to go to the IRS agency to do it. You're just someone that, that, that around that you work with that, that you know they don't know the Lord. Say, Lord, I want to I talk with you and, and see, uh, 
See what happens. See what the Lord does. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time this morning, for your great grace. Lord, the fact that you've opened up our eyes to see our need for a great physician, a Savior, one that could heal and forgive us of all of our sins. Lord, I know many of us that I am were blown away, Lord, that you've called us to be one of your own, that we're a child of God, men and women of your children, Lord. And Lord, as your kids, I know, Lord, that you want us to to go out and reach those that don't know you. So, Lord, we pray this week for divine appointments. We pray, Lord, that you'd help us to to see the needs of those around us, that we might, through you, Lord, be your hands and your feet in helping people. Lord, thank you that you are uh, the bridegroom and you're coming back soon for us. Lord, we recognize we don't have a whole lot of time, that you're going to return very soon, Lord. So, Lord, we're excited for that. We can't wait. Lord, help us to be used by you. Uh, mightily until you return.